Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are always ready to help you personalize your insurance plan so you can create a policy that fits your needs. You can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. And you can always call one of the State Farm agents in neighborhoods across the country. Get a great rate without sacrificing great service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, Episode 210, China's Lost Battalion. Last time, the Japanese Expeditionary Force, under General Matsui, had finally been able to push south of Wusong Creek and reach Zumantang Creek two miles away at Dachang. Even better, some of the attacking units had been able to cross over, late on the morning of October 24th. This was possible after the nationalist counterattack on either side of Wusong Creek had failed. It seemed that Shanghai proper was indeed about to be threatened directly from the west. And yet Matsui was not satisfied. He guessed that the last few days spent hiding in trenches had robbed his men of their offensive spirit. But now that the resistance before them was broken, it was, once again, time to push forward. So, hoping to spark their adventurous spirit, even through shame, the general called his divisional commanders to his headquarters and let them know he was disappointed. The men around him quickly threw up excuses that they didn't have enough supplies, the men were still tired from a lack of food, but what they did not say was the more relevant truth, that the commanders had already lost their best men, so were now more cautious in approaching the enemy lines. This was a wise move, as the hardened superior officer would have verbally lashed at them. But Matsui was about to get help from the defenders themselves. During the night of October 24th 25th, Chiang Kai-shek pulled back more of his men south to Suzhou Creek, the last natural barrier before the western approaches to Shanghai would be open. And as the Chinese had become experts in this, disappearing in the dark, the Japanese did not recognize the change before them when morning came on October 25th. Reconnaissance units were sent out, the truth was then made known to the attackers, and immediately the Japanese advanced in force on Zaomangtang Creek, with Dachang just on the other side. And as the advance was made, the Japanese artillery engaged in creeping artillery fire for the first time. That is, launching salvos to land just ahead of their men as they stayed on the move. However, as this had not been practiced, the gap between the landing shells and the advancing men was such that the Chinese defenders were able to hunker down while being shelled, but then rise up to retake their defensive positions, thus meeting out some punishment as the Japanese approached. Of course, this bravery did nothing to stop the Japanese advance. The Chinese continued pulling back to the south, and yet some divisions were ordered to remain behind at Dachang to somehow, keep it out of enemy hands, 
even though the land just north of the Zalmongtong Creek now held very few defenders. But controlling the north bank of the Zalmongtong was not the same as being able to cross it in force. For that, the two bridges just west of Dachang had to be taken. And though the majority of Chinese troops had redeployed further south, a few divisions remained. One at Old Man Bridge, just a half mile from Dachang, the other, the Little Stone Bridge, just one-fourth of a mile away from Dachang. As the Old Man Bridge was further away, and thus further away from the Chinese artillery at Dachang, it was attacked first. There, the Chinese 33rd Division held firm, determined to keep the enemy from crossing. But between the attacker's superior artillery and dominant air power, the Chinese were soon too shell-shocked when the 20 Japanese tanks started to cross. By early in the day of October 25th, the bridge was lost. Those Chinese defenders who survived the assault, about 1 in 10, retreated east towards Dachang. These surviving troops were soon joined by the men of the 18th Chinese Division, as they had been no more successful at safeguarding Little Stone Bridge. Before dark came, both groups of survivors were making their way to Dachang. As the newly arrived Chinese troops settled down, their commander in Dachang, Zhu Yaohua, was told by one of Chiang Kai-shek's lieutenants that Dachang was to be held at all costs. Zhu Yahua blanched upon hearing this, as he had believed that once his superiors found out that Little Stone Bridge was already lost, that it would be enough to have him court-martialed and shot. Thus, that night, he arranged for a counterattack to retake the crossway. However, the Japanese had expected and prepared for this, so very few of the raiding party returned to Dachang. The remaining defenders at Dachang knew that the next day, October 26th, would bring a direct attack on the city. And they were right. As the sun rose, some 400 enemy aircraft flew over the city, already a scattering of piles of rubble, and dropped bombs throughout the day. As Chiang Kai-shek knew in his heart that defending the city was a lost cause, its artillery pieces had been removed the night before to make their way south to the next defensive line. After the bombing stopped, some 40 Japanese tanks reached the western edge of Dachang. The only thing that stood in their way were what was left of the three Chinese divisions, their rifles, and sidearms. The Japanese armor made short work of the Chinese before them and took what was left of Dachang. Before the day was over, General Matsui would write in his diary, After a month of bitter fighting, today we have finally seen the payoff. As for Zhu Yaohua, the city's defender, he killed himself two days later for having failed an impossible situation. The Chinese continued to pull back south, all forces north of the Suzhou Creek, which enters Shanghai proper on its western border. It was the same for all Chinese forces directly north of the metropolis as well. 
By the morning of October 27th, the Japanese controlled everything north of Suzhou Creek except the Four Banks Warehouse in Jabay, the area immediately north of the foreign settlement. They just didn't know it yet. The lone building was also one of the few structures not damaged by fire, as the retreating Chinese forces set fire to everything to deny the Japanese provisions and dwellings. Again, the Japanese had failed to notice or impede the Chinese as they left. Much food and all their artillery was taken south, south of the Suzhou Creek, Chiang Kai-shek's latest defensive line. By 9 a.m. on October 27th, Regimental Commander Lieutenant Colonel Xi Jingyuan and the 1st Battalion of his 524th Regiment, 88th Division, awaited the Japanese at the Four Banks Warehouse. His second-in-command, Battalion Commander Major Yang Ruifu, stood beside his leader and informed him that the improvements the lieutenant colonel had ordered were complete. The building was rather like a fortress and had withstood much already. Here the Chinese would make their stand and make the enemy pay in blood when they took this last piece of Chinese-controlled territory north of the Suzhou Creek. For take it, they would, with their dominance of the sky, their superior artillery, and more numerous men than those of the slightly more than 400 Chinese troops within the building. However, a commander considered defeat as well as victory. Just some 40 feet away behind the building was the most forward British position, guarding their own nationals and property. When Z's men started to fall, perhaps it would be possible to take the wounded to the foreigners, any chance to save their lives. Earlier that morning of October 27th, at 7.30 a.m., Z's forward outpost near the north train station sent back word that the enemy had been spotted. Z ordered those men to engage the enemy and then retreat, bringing the attackers with them. There was no sense in letting the Japanese determine how the fighting would start. Better to be the instigator. The men of the forward post did as they were told and soon were back with the others. However, there was a delay before the enemy came. Obviously, they were quite unaware of the battalion's presence, or their exact location, having assumed the Chinese had pulled out completely. Z got his men spread out throughout the building and waited. Around 1 p.m., the Japanese troops came. However, they did so, marching, as if on parade, behind a large Rising Sun banner. Z let them get in close and then ordered his men to open fire. Five enemy troops fell instantly. The rest ducked and ran for cover. The surviving Japanese called for reinforcements, which arrived within an hour. This time the enemy came not behind a Rising Sun banner, but artillery shells. The Japanese were held off, but the men Commander Z had behind a wall just outside the building were forced back inside. With both sides still exchanging bullets, 2nd in command Yang ordered 12 men to the roof to lob grenades down on the attackers. 
The men did so, and this drove the enemy back, who had no answer for such an attack. Another seven Japanese troops were left behind, dead. As the Suzhou River was not that far away, the defenders' comrades on the other side watched the battle for the building unfold, along with several foreign correspondents. When the Japanese came a third time, they did so warily, slowly, always keeping a piece of rubble between themselves and the Chinese troops. Perhaps they believed that they were approaching unawares, but this was not so. The Chinese troops had been watching them all along, but were told to hold their fire. Only when the Japanese soldiers were relatively close were more grenades dropped on them. Again, the survivors ran away, but a few came back for their wounded comrades. These brave, caring men then died in their turn. Mercy had long since departed this field of battle. Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Dell Technologies. At CDWG, we get that migrating your agency to a hyper-converged infrastructure is challenging. Like me, switching to decaf. Gotta do it, don't want to do it, but gotta do it. Whoa, slow down, friend. CDWG's experts can help simplify your transition from legacy to hyper-converged infrastructure with Dell Technologies solutions that offer speed and agility. Do it, do it. Have you done it? Is it done yet? Why isn't it done yet? IT orchestration by CDWG. People who get it. Find out more at cdwg.com slash Tech. The sun set on October 27th, but the 1st Battalion of the 524th Regiment did not rest, could not rest. Their wounded had to be tended to, their defensive positions strengthened. When light came on October 28th, many Japanese planes flew over the Four Banks warehouse, but not one of them dropped a bomb. Most likely, Matsui knew that even if one bomb went astray, crossed the Suzhou, and landed amongst the foreigners, then Tokyo would have an international situation on its hands and would probably replace him. Still, many enemy guns were brought forward, and at 3 p.m., another attack commenced. The Chinese defenders were brought up short when they realized that some of those enemy artillery pieces had been hauled to the tops of buildings as shell and machine gun fire came from the roofs of several nearby buildings. Z and his men had to resist for a full two hours before the Japanese pulled back. And yet, what seemed like a victory was not, for the attack was not what it seemed. During the contest, the Japanese had found the water supply to the Chinese building and had it cut. The Chinese soldiers put their remaining water under lock and key, and began to store their urine to put out future fires. That night, the wounded were carried across the Suzhou River. The men were told that, if anyone asked, they were to say that there were some 800 Chinese troops inside the building. Thus, the story, The Legend of the 800 Heroes, arose. And yet, despite the heroic attempts of the 524th Regiment, China was losing the larger war. The countryside to the north and west of Shanghai was being gobbled up by the Japanese. Or rather, the territory was being lost by the Chinese soldiers, who had started out so enthused, but now felt helpless 
For one, after each division was whittled down to one-third of its strength, it was pulled to the rear, remanned, and then put back in the field. So, in time, each and every soldier could expect to die. And the men quickly figured this out. There was no campaign limits or such like, as the war was not going the defender's way. Thus, morale began to sink, and kept on sinking. Chang's officers tried to keep the truth from him, knowing it would have no effect on him. Still, they had to be truthful and inform their leader that the men's hearts were no longer in this fight. What's more, mutiny, on a massive scale, was becoming a real possibility of the men Chang was relying on. As such, his staff agreed that a new defensive line had to be drawn up, but not one with a view to saving Shanghai. The city, to their eyes, was already lost. It was just a matter of time. No, what they sought, what they finally worked up the courage to say to Chang, was that the next line had to be even further south, by some 35 miles, or 56 kilometers, near the city of Jiazing, about halfway to the Hangzhou Bay. With the fighting still going on around the Four Banks warehouse, as well as at Zhuzhou Creek in early November, Bai Chongzi bravely stood before his leader and said the men could hardly be controlled any longer. They all knew death was coming for them, so nothing could be lost by them by simply leaving and going home or hiding in a nearby town. But this blatant statement of China's current defensive position did nothing to move the nationalist leader. He still believed that by opposing the Japanese this close to Shanghai, it would bring the nationalist foreign sympathy, eventually in the form of military assistance. During this time of late October and into early November, the refugee crisis grew worse. What's more, the people in their huddled masses trying to flee were being strafed by Japanese fighters. The Shanghai Red Cross tried, again, to get both sides to agree to an area near the French concession that would be off-limits to fighting, so the people would have a place to go. The Chinese agreed, but the Japanese, in the form of Consul General Okamoto Suemasa, replied he would have to consult with Tokyo. In the early afternoon of October 29th, Chinese civilians stationed on the south side of the Suzhou Creek, but keeping an eye out for enemy movement, sent word to the hold-up Chinese soldiers that a large body of enemy troops, at least several hundred, were en route to the warehouse. Nearby, British soldiers sent along the same message. They did not want to see the Japanese win, as one of their comrades had been killed during a recent Japanese air raid. Sure enough, the Japanese showed up with several guns and began to shell the warehouse. The attack went on for more than an hour, yet the defenders were behind ten-foot-thick walls. They survived the shelling and then poured bullets into the ensuing enemy infantry attack. Yes, the enemy had been beaten back again, yet everyone knew there would come a time when they would succeed. By now, the world was talking about the lost battalion. They had done their job, 
as the Japanese were seen as the clear aggressors. With this being the state of things, Zhang Baoning, the chief of staff for the 80th Division, contacted Commander Z and told him to get ready to pull out. By now, with the Japanese in such proximity, the only way out was to cross the least bridge that would take them into the British section. As such, they would need the permission of the British. But that was easily gained, as again the British were hoping to see the arrogant Japanese defeated, or at least humbled. The British agreed on the afternoon of October 30th. Also on that day, the Japanese, sensing a change in the wind, ramped up their attack on the warehouse. Their shelling was so intense that the British sentries along the Lease Bridge were forced back. When night came, the Chinese readied themselves to run across the bridge. That was the extent of their plan. Meanwhile, the Japanese moved in even closer with their artillery. They had just been ordered to keep up the shelling nonstop until the building was theirs, or all inside, were dead. With the Japanese constantly shelling, they were the ones providing cover sounds for the Chinese to get into position. In small groups, the Chinese inched towards the bridge and only began to run flat out when they were discovered and fired upon by machine guns. It took several of these groups being spotted before the Japanese realized this was a general retreat and not just a few cowards running for safety. So a tank flanked by infantry, was sent to block the road to the bridge. A few defenders gave their lives in trying to hold back or distract the tank with a machine gun as the last of the men ran for the bridge. As the last group started to cross, several enemy machine guns and artillery pieces turned their way and began taking down the unfortunate. However, once the men were across, and met by British troops, the Japanese stopped firing, again, to avoid an international incident. By the time the lost battalion was across, some 355 of them had made it. The others, just under a hundred, did not. Chiang Kai-shek's latest defensive line was along the south bank of the Suzhou Creek, coming directly out of western Shanghai. It went due west for a few miles, but then turned to the northwest and ran through Nanziang, located about 4 miles or 6.5 kilometers due west of the recently lost Dachang. From there, it continued heading north by northwest until it reached the Yangtze River. As far as defensive positions go, the Suzhou Creek was in a class by itself. It was 150 feet across and each side had seven-foot banks, and it was proper for the Suzhou to be so formidable, because if it was lost, there was no other natural barrier south to form a defense around. Shanghai would be lost. The Chinese troops still within would be cut off from help. Of the Suzhou line, one German advisor noted, therefore the Chinese command was placing all its bets on holding the position as long as possible, without risking the annihilation of units that would be essential for continuing the war. As the Japanese had every intention of crossing the Suzhou and taking Shanghai 
they had already begun creating enough room for maneuver in order to move south. On October 28th, Nong Siang was attacked, the Japanese coming at it from due east, just above the river at Dachang. The Japanese, with their artillery and air power, easily pushed aside the first defensive line, and then the second, and then the next. However, still more entrenchments were before them. The Japanese offensive lost momentum as the men tired. Nang Ziang was safe for now. The Japanese rested and settled for taking Jinru in between Dachang and Nang Siang, which still hurt the defenders as most of their radio signals came from there. General Matsui had his men go after Nang Siang again on October 30th, this time led by 30 tanks. However, as there were few tank-worthy roads to Nang Siang, the Chinese were able to focus their anti-tank weapons and dish out severe punishment. The Japanese pulled back, having lost several tanks and many men. Matsui called off the attack of Nang Siang. The general then focused on crossing the Suzhou, as he believed the defenders there were still weak and unorganized from their retreat south. As this crossing had been predicted, the Japanese, in what parts of northern Shanghai they controlled, began gathering all manner of boats. This allowed the 3rd Japanese Infantry Division, on October 31st, to launch several attacks in trying to cross the waterway near the village of Zhujiajiao. This was on the eastern end of the Suzhou Creek Front. The Japanese were sending in fresh troops with each attack, while the same Chinese soldiers were defending from the other side. By the afternoon, the Chinese became tired and allowed one enemy unit to reach the southern bank. The Chinese immediately counterattacked, but the stubborn Japanese held on to their tiny possession. A little to the east of this, even closer to the foreign settlement, another Japanese unit tried to cross. They had at their disposal a mile-long smokescreen and bombers close overhead, but when they reached the southern shore, they were immediately pushed back into the water by an intense artillery attack. On November 1st, the Japanese 9th Division tried to cross where the defensive line turned to the northwest. The three battalions, using confiscated boats, as had the men of the 3rd Division, crossed the Suzhou and gained a bridgehead. The rest of the day, as well as the next, saw the two Japanese divisions bring across men as fast as they could. By the end of the second day, the attackers held a half-mile line on the south bank. The next day, the Chinese launched a massive counterattack and regained some of their lost territory, but not all of it. As they were only some 60 feet from the enemy, their impressive amount of artillery could not be used effectively, as shells could have easily landed down on their own men. Support for this podcast comes from Stella Artois. This summer, enjoy the life Artois. You can experience it anywhere, from your patio to the tidal basin. All it takes is being present, being there, with the people you love and a cold Stella Artois in hand. Wherever you are, you're never too far from the life Artois. Stella Artois. Please enjoy responsibly. 
early in the morning of November 3rd, the Chinese defenders awoke to white gas floating amongst them. Someone yelled poison gas, and this sent panic throughout the trench works, as no one had any equipment to deal with gas. With great relief, the men realized it was only a smoke screen. But of course, that meant an attack was imminent. This was the fourth day for the battle of the village of Zhu Jiaojiao, and the defenders had killed many enemy soldiers, but they had not taken back all of the land of the South Bank. What's more, the Japanese had built a pontoon bridge across the Suzhou, which only increased the rate at which their reinforcements were coming over. Sure enough, the Japanese attacked the defensive lines. The battle went on until 4 p.m. that afternoon, and though the Chinese had held the line, their numbers had been whittled away. Of the 600 men who had started fighting in this area four days ago, there were only some 200 of them left. Their commander was dead. All but one of their company commanders was dead, as was most of their platoon commanders. That evening, the area's second-in-command was told to stand down and get some rest, and he agreed, but first he had one more thing to take care of, to destroy that pontoon bridge. He and some others had already tried a frontal attack, but that only ended up getting most of them killed. Then they tried sending a swimmer downstream with explosives, but that didn't work. Next, they rolled up cotton and soaked it with gasoline to send it downstream to fire the bridge. But the enemy had wisely strung up barbed wire, thus protecting the crossing. The man's last chance was to float what few sea mines they had towards the bridge. But as they were putting them into the water, the Japanese discovered this and fired upon the crew. Every man was killed, except the second in command. He had 13 bullets in him, but somehow survived. As frustrated as Chiang Kai-shek was with his constant losing to the invaders, General Matsui was no happier. He had expected by November 3rd, the birthday of the Emperor Meiji, the 19th century ruler who reigned while Japan went from an isolated backwater entity to an industrialized powerhouse, to celebrate the day in Shanghai proper. All the general felt now was humiliation. The general wasn't the only one concerned with how the war was progressing. Japan did not have enough manpower to take on Chiang Kai-shek and safeguard their northern possessions from the Russians. One of these fronts had to be wrapped up satisfactorily so the other could be focused upon. What decided the issue for the Army General Staff in Tokyo was that their Chinese enemy had amassed their divisions around Shanghai. Thus, it should be relatively easy to engage and wipe them out, to finally end this. So, it was decided thus. Shanghai would be occupied, the Chinese brought to their senses. And now, a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So, the 
the weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can save big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the, the weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can save big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.